Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Luke Perman is today's guest and he, along with his family, run a diverse ranch in Lowry, South Dakota. The ranch consists of commercial cow-calf enterprise, a custom grazing sheep flock, and a hunting and lodging enterprise. I'm excited to discuss with him his ranch and a little bit about what he attributes his ranch's success to, as well as as what he thinks will make a ranch successful for future generations. So Luke, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jared. Happy to be here. No, I'm excited to to talk to you. I, I think I first was kind of exposed to your ranch and a little bit of what you're doing on the Roots and Ruminants podcast, which if folks haven't heard that one yet, uh, you know, definitely check that out. That's a fantastic podcast. I think you're episode number two. And and you talk a lot about a lot of great things and then was able to kind of come across you later through a mutual connection, which was fantastic. And I'm excited that you're willing to spend a little time with me talking about what you're doing. But um, if you wouldn't mind getting started with talking about your history in ranching or maybe your family's history in ranching, how far back does it go um, and how you got to where you are today? Uh, well, I guess my um, ancestors came over, uh, mostly f- they were Germans from Russia. So they were in the kind of the Black Sea region. They spent about a 150 years there before they decided to come to the United States around 1900. And uh, so I'm the fifth generation of um, of my family to make a living with agriculture in this, I guess, in this specific county in, the, in this area here. So we're not operating on much of the same property, I guess, as what we our family has started with. I think they tended to be more farmers when they came over. And I guess today our operation is a lot more animal-based, you know, mostly grazing acres uh, with some farm ground. So I guess that's kind of the background from a long history perspective. But the ranch that we're on right now, uh, my parents came back from college in 1976 and kind of started building, kind of working with my grandparents, but then kind of started building their own operation that over the last about 15 years or so, they've transitioned the management mostly over to me and and the ownership is basically as as I can afford to grow. They allow me to get a little more equity stake every year in, in what we're doing. So yeah. Have you talked to your parents, or your grandparents, and kind of why they decided to make that switch from more of a farming background to a, uh, you know, grasslands ranch-based operation? Well, I think that was where the opportunities were back, you know, when, when my parents got started. I, I mean, there's always been some cattle in the operation, so it's not like it, it was all just exclusively farming at any time. But the grazing side of it, I think I, I would say my, my parents probably took more interest in that. But that was where their equity lied in sure. the late 70s, early 80s. So their interests were, well, if you know much about the egg economy and and uh, uh, environmental factors going on at that time, you had drought and high interest rates and mm-hmm. markets dropping and, and all that sort of thing. So they had to figure out pretty quick, you know, how do we make this work? And, and it, it almost didn't for a while because they were pretty conventional but those events coming together at that time really incentivized them to look at how do we do this differently? How do we work with nature rather than against it? So yeah, they, they were the ones that really, I, my parents were the ones that really made the effort on the grazing side to, to understand more. It was, it was where they're, it was, it was what they had to do to get through those tough times. Yeah. 
Oh, that always fascinates me when I hear people kind of, especially in that era when there wasn't this abundance of resources that we have now, you know, podcasts, conferences, books, everywhere you can hear and learn about this sustainable and regenerative grazing and farming and stuff. But at that time, they just realized there was a problem and maybe that something needed to change. Do you know, was there something that where they learned or did they just kind of discover on their own what needed to do, what they needed to do different? At that time, the Soil Conservation Service had some resources, and there was there were some programs. That, and I don't know much about them. I know they talk about the Great Plains program um, in the '80s that helped to develop some develop some water sources. You know, bury pipelines for um, for water for cattle and pay for cross fences and and those sort of things. But there was also some monitoring that went along with that. You know, doing some transects and photo points and and some of those kind of things. I think they went to a, a holistic management course at one time, you know, a, a workshop. It wasn't a, a long thing, maybe like a, a two-day workshop. And I think just observing too what had transpired. I mean, the, some of the land that they that they bought or they started uh, managing or renting at that time had been had a history of abuse. And so they saw how poor the production was on some of that and, you know, gullies forming and, and that sort of thing. So it was, it, there were resources there. They weren't nearly, I mean, nowhere close to what there is now, but no, they, they, they took it upon themselves to learn it. And it kind of then morphed into, um, as my sister and I were old enough to get into 4-H, we got involved with Rangeland Days as a kind of a, a youth okay. range camp, basically in South sure. Dakota, um, and doing mm-hmm. plant ID books and, and those kind of things. Uh, they just continue to build that knowledge base. And I, I guess one thing that I, I know my grandpa was a pretty innovative uh, farmer. Like he was the first one to have a round baler in the area. He was the first one to have a yard light out in the yard, things like that. Um, yeah. You know, actually when dad got into that Great Plains program, he was the first one to get cost share on a, one of those uke tire tanks or like earth moving tires. Sure, it, sure. The NRCS had not cost shared one of those in our state at that point, or well, Soil Conservation Service or whatever. So I would say my family probably has a little bit of a innovative innovation streak. <laughs> it sure. just kind of manifests itself differently. You know? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's neat. It seems like in this kind of field and realm, it seems like a lot of, the, well, I, I shouldn't say that actually, because a lot of the folks are like the Gabe Browns who came into it with no experience and learned on their own. And then there's a lot of folks like you, and I would say myself that had, you know, a little bit different thinking parents as well. So I guess there's a combination of all. So I shouldn't say it's all one or another, but that's neat that they were able to do that. And I want to get into where we're, where you're at today and like what your ranch is made up of, but do you maybe want to talk about kind of where they started as far as enterprises and, you know, production models? You said they were a little bit conventional early on and kind of, is there a a timeline sort of as they started to make changes, some of the early things they did to where, where you are now? I would say that it's been pretty, there's been incremental growth through the years, there wasn't like a big change at any point. It was just continual growth. So sure, um, I know when they started, it was, you know, cow calf and I, and I know they, they had some sheep and they got started and that was a bit of a disaster. It's mm-hmm. kind of one of those things that <laughs> they could only talk about it 20 years later Yeah, because <laughs> it caused, caused a fair amount of uh, financial and marital stress <laughs> for them. <laughs> but uh, that still has the check from the last sheep he sold, I think it was less than the stamp that it cost to mail uh, oh the checkout to him from the sale barn. So th- wow. it was something they were happy to be rid of at that time. But I, I guess we've we've kind of always had Angus cattle. And in the 80s, uh, 
as far as trying to improve and do better, I, uh, the ad was uh, using AI on the cow herd. And, and I, I think actually, uh, if I could go back and get that set of cows he had in about 1991 mm-hmm. or two, I, I'd probably take them. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, he, he was, he was trying to, you know, do some things with carcass traits, marbling specifically, and had used some, uh, uh EXT as a AI sire pretty heavily. And I had some, some nice females and yeah, there were some crazy ones too, but, but the, anyways, uh, the, the, the water development and the fence, um, the cross fencing and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I grew up, that was just what we did. I thought everybody built as much fence as we did, but we were just, it seemed like we were constantly rebuilding fences or moving a fence or adding a fence. And, um, so maybe the bad back isn't hereditary. Maybe it's just a result of the, <laughs> of, of what we, uh, of what we did, you know? Um, but yeah. So, so that was always going just ongoing. And then, you know, but there'd be a neighbor that had a corridor next to us. Well, and so we'd rent that and, and we'd work on improving that one. And then another neighbor on another side or what, it just kind of kept adding over time. So that there wasn't the, like a big shift of when we really, really changed, I would say. And then once I came back in 2006, well, I'll say starting probably when I was in high school, they had tried to help get me involved with the management, like picking out bulls and that sort of thing. And I made some mistakes uh, on on some of those uh, ventures, but uh, he was patient with me and let me let me make my own decisions and mm-hmm. live with them. But uh, when I came back in 2006, then I started running some cows on share with a neighbor, and and I think that was when my learning really started. Probably was when I had more influence on day to day stuff and really started to see in greater detail w- what the results of my decisions were. So then it probably took about five or six years until I switched our genetics to a little more smaller frame, adaptable type of an animal. But yeah, I guess that's on the genetics side. The grazing side, I feel like, like I said, it's just every year, I think we get a little better. At least I get more experience, <laughs> whether or not it's better or not. It's another story. Yeah, yeah. I like the uh, the back reference because I always say I inherited my dad's bad back, but maybe, uh, maybe that was the fact that he decided to build fence with railroad ties. And now <laughs> instead, yep. and we did a lot of lifting railroad ties and putting in fence all over our place. And now we're using that, uh, oh, what is it like the fiberglass sucker rod? And gosh, that has made building fence quick and simple. I love that stuff, but, oh yeah, uh, man. Um, yeah, same here. We, I bought a post pounder and, and we used uh, like two and seventies pipe for all of our corners mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. uh, my help is t- probably tired of hearing me say how much easier this is. And <laughs> I, don't know. Yeah. I appreciate it. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, you're right. Exactly. If we didn't grow up doing something a little different, you wouldn't appreciate it as much now that we have these yep. different technology options. It's funny thinking of something like a piece of fiberglass sucker rod as technology, but it sure has changed the way we can operate and, and run a yeah. raising operation. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned there your cattle a little bit. So cow-calf is still a part of your business model today. What is the overall, you know, the enterprises that make up uh, Rock Hills Ranch today? Sure. So we, we have a cow-calf herd, um, and that consists of some that Dad and I own, as well as we have a couple neighbors that we run on shares with. And uh, so, and then one other herd that we kind of contract manage, like, and they're in with ours. So it's... I'll say pretty much every enterprise that, that we have, I have a partner on in some form. I, I hardly own anything outright myself as far as livestock goes. But the, so cow-calf is the, the centerpiece of our grazing operation. Mm-hmm. And it makes up half to 
maybe two thirds at the most, I guess, of our stocking rate. Now, this time of the year, that's all we have. But during the summer, you know, then we add in um, a seasonal stocker yearling program and then the custom grazing of uh, a couple bands of sheep. So the, the, the stockers are probably um, about, about twice as um, much grazing demand for the, with the stockers as the sheep, roughly. Okay. So sure. those are the kind of the three main grazing segments of our, our grazing enterprises we've, we've got. And then we do some, some hunting where folks come out and hunt pheasants or deer. And then we also have a farming enterprise, but I don't really do a lot with that. I have a neighbor who enjoys farming. And so I take care of his cows. That's the contract managed cow herd that we have. And then uh, he takes care of my farming and we were both happier that way. So um, I like that. No, that that's, that's important. Recognizing your strengths and working with those with kind of alternative strengths and stuff and, and kind of mutually beneficial relationships. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it's it, the thing about having partners, it, 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 sometimes it's cumbersome because there's more than one person that has to make decisions and it's a bookkeeping nightmare at times, mm, but sure. the, the value of having people to be accountable to helps me make sure I'm making good decisions at times. Mm. And then just having their input at times is I have to make a case to them why we're doing this, why we're trying something different. And uh, so I think it helps me to justify what I'm doing a little better knowing I, I actually do have to explain it to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's something that I guess I've been considering more and more lately. I, I listened to a bunch of podcasts and one is the, um, uh, the ag view pitch podcast, and they do a lot with specifically farming and helping farmers set up partnerships. Like where, you know, rather than one farmer with, uh, you know, one farmer with his own line of equipment running his own land. There's four farmers that share a little bit larger upgraded line of equipment that farm together, um, kind of their own unique separate farming enterprises, but they share labor, share equipment. And I've always been trying to, you know, kind of think how can we, how can we, you, you kind of apply that mindset to cattle. And it's a little bit different, especially in a, a mindset where we're trying to minimize overhead and equipment and machinery anyway. That's kind of the advantage of the farming side is they get to split and share that. And we're trying to reduce labor and, and machinery needs entirely, not just share them with other people. But uh, you've obviously found a way to collaborate with other producers in a ranching uh, ranching system. And I think that's, gosh, I, I wish we could get more collaboration. It seems like that was always a big part of back in the day. Everybody was helping neighbors and today's more individualized it it really is and that's it's there are some cases of collaboration happening but it's always you know we're we're kind of independent-minded people to be in this Mm -hmm. business and it takes you know it it takes that real desire to want to work together with somebody and maybe let go of certain aspects that you've always done just in order to make it work so it's not for everybody you know but um i can say you know with with uh the partners that we've got, they all understand what we're trying to do and they're on board and they see the results. And I guess, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a good experience, at least to this point, you know, of, uh, everyone seems happy with, with the, the direction. So. Yeah. So now that, yeah, I mean, you bring up this conversation of partnerships and stuff that I didn't even really think about. Let's go down this a little more. So you got partnerships with the farmer, the farmer kind of to him, run your farm ground, you run his cattle, you got partnerships with livestock owners for the stockers and a separate livestock owner for the sheep is that kind of the extent of your partnerships 
Uh, so yeah, so the, the the sheep are strictly custom grazing. We don't own any of those. Okay. Um, I think that that may change in the future, but I, I'm yeah. We, we won't go into that <laughs> right now. <but laughs> sure. The the, stock, the stockers, yeah, we we've been. That's been. Uh, I think we're, this is our fifth year with stockers, and mm. I've growing up with the strictly cow calf and re- just some replacement heifers. The stocker thing has really been pretty cool to see how that works into a this type of a grazing system where flexibility is really important and being able to get cattle where they need to be at the right time can be really hard with 300 pairs. Um, Mm -hmm. My stockmanship skills are not where I would like them to be someday. So so getting those pairs to move two miles and not have calves running back, I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas like you can move 500 steers three, you know, six miles and drop them off and, you're done. Like it's, it's just really simple. So, so there's, there's some really neat things there, but okay. Going back to the partnership side of it, I had a lot to learn on management and marketing and procurement and just everything related to that. And so when we got into it, our nutritionist, it was kind of the one that helped us get foot in the door on stockers and helped us find partners. Cause it's one thing to have the grass for them. It's another thing to have the equity to go buy the cattle. So, so that, that, or, and I didn't want to take the risk, you know, um, I, I didn't want to expose myself to a hundred percent of the, the risk of, of the market or the drought or whatever. And so it's a risk management tool as well. But, um, the, the cow herd has been, yeah, the, so I guess the cow herd was the first partners that I had on anything. And that was running share cows with some neighbors and we, we still do that. They're kind of in kind of early retirement age bracket and so for them it's a way to stay in the cattle business but not have to do the work and it was a great way for me to get started with my cow herd was Mm -hmm. was doing it that way so yeah do you foresee yourself and and your business ever moving away from partnerships or do you having had experience in them always want to you know kind of rely or depend on those partnerships i mean um i'll just say i don't know I guess yeah, on, on that, I'll, I'll, I, I would have the door open either way. You know, that yeah. if I look at my balance sheet and I see where my equity is, you know, I like having, I like owning animals. I understand mm-hmm. that investment. Mm-hmm. Um, I like owning some real estate. I don't own a lot of real estate, um, mm-hmm. very little actually. Sure. Um, but it's just a matter of what, where do it, it, I don't really care if I own a hundred percent of the animals. For me, it's more as an individual, where do I want my equity to be on my balance sheet? And maybe that's in like Bitcoin or something. I, I have no idea. I'm just n- probably not Bitcoin. But you heard it here on the there, other... podcast. Uh, Bitcoin is the future of ranching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. Oh boy, uh, it's down now. It's a good time to buy. So yeah, yeah. No, that I, it owning owning the animals that are grazing at our place is a separate conversation for me. Mm-hmm. To compared to where do I want my money invested? Like whether yeah. I own them all or not, I don't care. It's it's. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. It would simplify things, but, but at the same time, having those relationships with, with people that can bring other things to the table. I mean, that's, I think that's really important. So. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's, you know, it, it, I wonder if people think as intentionally as you sound like you do on what their, you know, asset, where, where the equity in their balance sheet is. 
you know, I mean, I mean, that partnership with the farmer, especially, you know, you don't need all that equity tied up in equipment that's depreciating and stuff because you have a partnership with a guy who, you know, chooses instead to have his equity and maybe machinery and things. And that, in my mind, makes a lot of sense. You know, you have it tied up in something that's not depreciating and breaking down and requiring fuel and stuff. And so that can be a, you know, partnership that allows you to put your money where you believe is the best investment and stuff. And, you know, that's, I guess that's just, uh, yeah, interesting. And do you, do you, uh, and, and I'm not, I haven't been to a ranching for profit school yet, but I'm hoping I can learn more about how to do these analysis. I'm just reading the book, uh, by Dave Pratt now, the turnaround and stuff and talking about charging yourself and, uh, you know, an opportunity cost on that equity. Do you look between the owned enterprises and the custom enterprises and, and charge yourself, you know, an opportunity cost to that equity tied up in your owned cattle? And does it still compete with the custom cattle? Well, um, as much as I like the numbers, I can't tell you that I know them cold, sure, <laughs> but sure, yeah. I would say that the, the one thing about having these partnerships is, you know, I'm exchanging my labor for something, whether it's, you know, heifer calves or, mm-hmm. um, or actually sending them a bill for yardage or, you know, mm-hmm. custom care. So it does force me to look at what can I charge reasonably for labor to my partners for running these cattle that they own or they own a percentage of. And from that, I can extrapolate that out to my percentage of, of whatever the herd is. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, so that, that helps me to keep a pretty good, a pretty good pulse on it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the custom enterprises, which is just the sheep, I guess, you know, I don't have any ownership there. For me, uh, part of way I, what I'm getting paid on that is education at this point, because I could read all the books I wanted about grazing sheep or, or running a thousand head of sheep, but mm-hmm. having them here on the place and seeing what is the equipment that we really need for this, you know, what do I need to get set up in order to really, if I wanted to own them, to make it really work. So I'm not getting paid any labor for having those sheep here. We're just getting paid for the grass and the water that they're consuming. But we've made investments in infrastructure to get them to stay here longer, you know, mm-hmm. and to get them to, to be able to handle more of them. And I don't know, it's a different equation on that enterprise versus the ones where where I own a percentage. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't know, yeah. I don't know if that really answers your question, but. No, no, that's great. And and I guess let's get into the sheep part a little bit. That was a more recent addition, I think. and. Why did you decide to add sheep when you were, you, I think you, you talked about yourself kind of as a cattleman, that was your, what you know and what you've done well, it's your family's history, why, why sheep? I think it was about four years ago, I got a phone call from uh, a neighbor, uh, who he, he neighbored a pasture that I that I rented, and uh, that pasture had a pretty bad leafy spurge problem. Pretty bad, meaning like the cows didn't even hardly go down to the one end of the pasture that bordered his cause there wasn't that much to eat <laughs> other than Spurge. And, uh, so he called me and said, Hey, what's going on over there? <laughs> what, <laughs> what are you guys doing? Cause you need to do something, you know, we're, we're trying our best to keep it out of our pasture. And, you know, it's some pretty rough ground with some steep hills and rocks and stuff. And he said, it's, it's not like we can just run out there with the sprayer and it's really easy. It's, it's tough and you guys got to do something. And, I appreciated his honesty and his willingness to <laughs> to confront me on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he wasn't he wasn't like mean about it or anything like that. But I mean, to, I guess to back up, we had tried to use uh, like the flea beetles. We released flea beetles out there a couple times to try to get them to 
knock it back or whatever. And um, in the past, we had used chemicals, and it just didn't seem like we were getting anywhere on it. And I knew that if we're doing the beetles, you can't just go spray everything because then the beetles can't get established. And I, I had seen we'd seen some progress with the beetles, but they had thinned it out. But no, by no means had they really made a significant dent in it. Mm-hmm. So I had thought about sheep off and on for several years, but I just couldn't figure out like how to do it um, without it being really risky or an incredible amount of work. So I uh, I actually as our nutritionist that helps us with the stalker deal, he also does some work for uh, nutrition work for a um, pretty good sized sheep producer in South Dakota. And so I called him and I was like, hey, do you think, because uh, he had told me they send sheep out for the summer to graze, not not in our area, but you know, within a few hundred miles of us. And so I call him, I said, do you think, could you give me their number? I'm interested in seeing if they would bring sheep out here to help us with this spurge deal. And uh, one thing led to another. And that was about six months later, we had a thousand sheep dropped in our yard and I did not know what was going to happen. <laughs> that was probably yeah. the scariest day of my yeah, career. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, yeah. that was, that was something, but yeah. So that, so that, we, that first summer we had one band, which is a thousand head. That's kind of the increments that they run in. Um, Cause then you can justify having a full-time herder. And uh, by the end of the summer, or, well, it wasn't even by the end of the summer, by the middle of the summer, I was thinking, well, a thousand is not that many. Actually, we need more than a thousand. And by the end of the second summer, so the, the second year, then we had 2000. Cause I mm-hmm. told them a thousand is not enough. We need more to get over this spurge to get over it in a timely fashion. And mm-hmm. and by the end of the second summer, I was thinking we need like 10,000 sheep to really wow. utilize everything on our, on our place. Um, yeah. We're in a little bit of a unique situation because we've got, we do have leafy spurge. And my goal with that is just to suppress it, to keep it from turning yellow basically and setting seed. So that's my way of dealing with that. And we, we still do a little bit of spot spraying and, and that sort of thing, but it's, it's really making a noticeable difference on the spurge, but we also have a lot of Western snowberry mm-hmm. in our, in our area here. So the cattle use that on a very limited basis, but the sheep will go and strip every leaf off at least for the first half of the summer. So, so we can really utilize a lot more of our, and, and that's not counting all the other broadleaf plants that the cows don't really want to eat, but aren't really a problem. So, so yeah, I guess that's kind of where we've gone with it. And we get them in May generally, and we keep them until October, November, kind of depends on the weather. Sure. Did they send a herder with the, the, the bands of sheep then to manage the, the labor yeah. side of them? Okay. Yeah. It's kind of a turnkey deal. Like really all we needed to provide was a place for the herders to stay, which they reimburse us for. Sure. That's gotta, it's gotta be relatively close to where the sheep are, of course. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of all we're, oh, and we have to go get them groceries, which they pay us back for also. Sure, um, sure. But we we do try to do more than that. Um, mm-hmm. we, we bought a loading chute so they don't got to bring their sheep loading chute out. We just, we, we bought net fencing because they didn't have enough to do everything that we would, that we kind of wanted them to do. Um, sure. But it, it all, I mean, it's all penciled out very well to yeah. make those investments. So yeah. Yeah. And so you had kind of talked about that the cattle didn't even graze in these areas very much anyway, because there wasn't much there. Do you think that these now 2000 sheep have kind of, as you start to get more numbers, dug into what the cattle was consuming otherwise? Has it kind of eaten into the the cattle? Yeah. The cattle forages or no? 
Um, on a ranch scale, no, it hasn't made a dent. I don't think. Wow. Um, I, I'm like I said, I'm still learning how these sheep fit in, to how mm. to do it best, I guess. So th- this past summer, I did some leader follower grazing, and depending on the year and the time of year, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Where you, you know, the cattle come through and take the stuff that they want to eat, basically, mm-hmm. without damaging it, and then you bring the sheep in right behind them, and they eat the plants that the cows probably didn't want to eat anyways. I, I think that has a, boy, that has a lot of value. I, yeah. If I could figure out how to do a, a flirt, you know, where they're in the same pasture, that might be, that would probably be better yet. But mm-hmm. um, with these custom great sheep, that's not probably going to be able to work very well. The, sure. the great Pyrenees dogs that come with them are, if there's a downside, it's probably the dogs because <laughs> they're sort of a nuisance in a few ways. They don't like our cattle, so they're chasing our cows and stuff. But that's another story. For now, we're kind of running them on separate parts of the ranch for the most part, um, or in separate different pastures altogether. But I mean, we're just scratching the surface, I think, of what is possible mm-hmm. with that. So, yeah, it's, no, to answer your question, no, they're not, they're not taking available grazing away from the cattle. Uh, I, wow. I feel like properly managed they're they're just skimming the cream off that or i should say they're cleaning up the stuff the cows wouldn't want to touch anyways so yeah so your initial plan and that's that was that i that's kind of bold of that neighbor to say you know like what are you doing here but it sounds like you know it was y'all were willing to hear like truly hear and listen and then think about you know what that means to him and what you can do and stuff so you brought in these sheep as the you know the initial plan just as kind of a weed control management and stuff but what have you discovered maybe some additional benefits or have they, have they fulfilled what your initial goal was of being weed managers in that specific leafy spurge and what, what's your overall thoughts on them? Yeah. Well, I, I think they're definitely doing the weed thing from what I had read when I got in, when we got into it, I'd read it takes six years until you should really expect to see much of a difference in plant vigor or stand density with leafy mm-hmm. spurge. I mean, I, I think, and I, I don't know what, those numbers, I'm not sure what the grazing system was where they kind of came up with that theory mm-hmm. uh, or those results. But I think we've seen it in in three years. We've seen a noticeable difference, and I think that's part of it is it's we've we've had five grazings on those sites in three years because we'll go through them in the spring and then again kind of late summer. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe that's part of it. I, I guess I'm not for sure, but um, so yeah, mm-hmm. so definitely. I see a difference on that to the point where I would even consider grazing the sheep first and then bringing the cows in at, right after them. I, I think that in some, there are some places on our ranch that would actually make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just going to depend on a person's specific plant community. So, mm-hmm. I mean, just being able to turn problems or wasted resources into an, some kind of economic value is, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's not just it's not just that oh we don't have to go spray weeds. It's that we don't have to spend money to spray weeds and we actually get paid mm-hmm. for the weeds getting eaten. I mean, yeah. Um that's that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, you know? I would say it, so. <laughs> it, the other and you know, and then along with that, we're not eradicating our our beneficial plants either. So so that's that's a huge a huge plus. And if that was all there was, I'd I'd do it anyways. But being able to turn, you know, like like the western snowberry it's not a, it's not a weed. It's not a bad plant, but in some places it's pretty thick, and it would take a lot of work with the cattle to get them to 
kind of keep it in check. Well, it's easy with mm -hmm. the sheep. So, so mm -hmm. it actually makes some of those sites easier to manage. Kind of a, a fringe benefit. Uh, those sheep can go and pick up the soybeans that the combine misses. So as soon as the combines roll in September, we can get off of our native grass and let it have the fall to recover. And we can get those, uh, we get actually get some economic value out of soybean acres after the combines go through. So, and the sheep are fat and uh, the owner is happy when they get sent back. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, no, it's working on several different levels. So, yeah. What do you think the main reason is people, everybody's not doing this then? I mean, that's, that makes, like you said, perfect sense. The, the, the weed management, the savings of other weed management controls and the actual financial advantage, you know, you're getting paid to do this, some sort of a custom rate or yardage fee for the grass or whatever. I mean, it seems like everybody should be doing this, especially when they're supplying the labor for you. I mean, what are, but even if they weren't, why are there not more sheep out on the landscape? Why don't people exercise and eat healthy? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. I, I mean, yeah. it's because we don't, because we don't have to. I mean, yeah, we, sure. if we're, if we're, if we're making it work uh, hmm. economically and it, as producers, we don't, there's not a lot of incentive to change unless you're one of those weirdos like me that always wants to do something different. Um, yeah. But honestly, I mean, even for me, who is interested in trying something different and, and going outside of the box on, on different things, I still had to have my neighbor have a very frank discussion with me before I was willing to pick up the phone and do it. So it, it's just, a, it's a pain issue. What, mm -hmm. What's, what's the least painful calling and trying to get someone to bring you a bunch of sheep and you're worried about coyotes you're worried about fence you're worried about you know you think the sheep are gonna just die or i mean all, all of the paradigms about from cattlemen about why sheep are not what you want those were all in play those are all reasons i didn't want to get them but the pain of writing a check to hire a plane or whatever to come spray that leafy spurge and then the environmental impact that that would have for me the least painful thing was to get the sheep <laughs> so yeah yeah no, that that's that's a good point. That's a good question. I mean, I feel like a lot of times, yeah, you're right. I mean, people are content doing what's they've always done if it's working. It may not be exceedingly profitable and this amazing lifestyle and stuff. They're breaking by, they're breaking even maybe, you know, or or even an economic loss if they're, you know, subsidizing it with owned land or cheap labor or something like that, but they're content with that because they're the lifestyle they want and they're making a go of it. They're still working and stuff, but when you kind of well, and, and, and the the, par the paradigms that go with sheep, as like I said, as a cattleman, of why why we can't have them here, why it won't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to address all those and you know fence predators, death loss, labor, and you know again like for me the the biggest part of it was the scale that I would need to justify the labor or the, the time, the management to go into it was, that was really the biggest factor. I, I knew that 50 sheep wasn't going to cut it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but, but where do you get a thousand sheep from, you know, how, how do you start on something like that? So, so this was, it was, this is really only, only the way it would, the only way it would have worked for me to get into it. Uh, I should say us, cause I'm not the only one that deals with it. My, my folks, uh, my dad specifically probably spends more time helping out with, with stuff with the sheep than than I do, but uh, anyways, no, I, I, it's a it's a pain thing. I think that's human nature. Yeah. What did your dad think when you talked about bringing sheep? You mentioned that was maybe a tough time for him earlier on <laughs> in their early experience. <laughs> no, he was actually pretty open to it. I okay. mean, okay. It, it, he and I are we, you know, we have the same 
I'll say, uh, ecological values or, you know, we, we both recognize very clearly we do not want to go and just blanket spray entire mm-hmm. pastures. We want to, we both want to have good relationships with our neighbors. You know, both of us, you know, understood the the potential of what it could do. I'm sure that he was happy that he was not the one that was going to be expected to take care of them. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. 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 But no, no, they were, he was very, very supportive and, and uh, totally on board with, with going forward with it. Yeah. You clearly, I mean, like you said, you're, you're the weirdo who's willing to do things a little differently and stuff. I mean, how has that, all of this resulted in, you know, overall business success? And I guess we haven't even talked about your hunting and lodging enterprise, but you're, you're diverse. You're not just content doing what you always done of cow calf. You added stalkers and sheep and hunting. I mean, how have all of these different you know, kind of additions into the ranch resulted in, you know, success, or maybe they haven't, maybe you're running ragged and you're barely making it by. I don't know, but I mean, has it resulted in success for you? Yeah. Of course it depends on how you define success, you know, but how do you uh, economic success? success. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll start with, with economic, I guess, not because it's the most important, but because it is sort of essential if you're going to keep doing it. Um, Yeah. I mean, each of these things we look at as, kind of a standalone like every decision we make we every decision has to make sense in some context it has to be economic and economically viable in some in some way even if it has to kind of piggyback with something else so so yeah all of these changes we've made have uh, resulted in an economic advantage of some kind i'll say that the water developments and the fences are probably the i'll say those kind of decisions have to result or have to go along with different management to make sense. If if you develop all, all this water and cross fence, all this stuff, but you don't run any more cows, you don't change anything um, stocking rate wise. You, no, that's not going to pay. You, you have to adapt, you know, the entire system to those kind of changes. But yeah, no, they've, these things have all helped us. I mean, I, I look at this past year with it being dry and um, we made a few cuts on, on some yearling numbers early, but in June I was asking, or July I was asking, can we get another band of sheep out here? <laughs> you know, I, I I feel like you know, the, I'll say decades at this point of attention to managing our our rangeland for you know a healthier system or a healthier ecosystem. It it, it pays off when you have dry years. Um, it pays off when you have wet years too, but. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it, it, there's no doubt in my mind that the economics work on on the things that we're doing. The management side of it, it yeah, it's tough. It's it's not uh, turn the cows out for the summer and go to rodeos and camping and do whatever. You know, I mean, it, there's definitely work involved, um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I've got uh, right now, I got kind of one and a half guys that are working for me, and they're younger guys that are interested in this kind of stuff, and I don't expect that either one of them will be here, you know, for a real long time. Like they both have potential to go elsewhere and, and manage their own places at some point, or maybe they'll manage something here for, you know, with, with us at some point, I guess I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. um, sharing that this experience and these lessons that we're learning is, I mean, that's a success. I feel like, cause we've been able to bring in more people to understand what's going on and, and pay, pay them a fair wage um, yeah. as well as give them some kind of education. Yeah. Well, I I like that even. It reminds me of a conversation I had with, I forget if it was Blake or Blaine Hitsfield. I talked with both of them and one of them kind of talked that their, their 
goal at their seven cents farm is not necessarily how many acres per person can we manage, but how many people per acre can we afford to bring onto our farm? Like we need more people on the mm-hmm. land, more people engaged in agriculture and, you know, this business that's, you know, awesome, especially if you can build a business that can pay a fair wage, you know, this is how we build back our rural communities and, you know, get new and young people back into the business. So that I appreciate you saying that it's not a bad thing necessarily for more work. Yeah. Well, and even giving them the opportunity to have an equity stake in some of it too. I mean, that's, uh, I'm sure that it, it adds for more bookkeeping like everything else, but they get to see the numbers behind it. They get to know that when that yearling died, they owned a percent of it. And they don't want the next one to die. There's that much more incentive for them to dig in and understand what's going on with with uh, with the operation. Can so. you talk about how you allow them equity? That that's neat. I, you don't hear many farms giving equity to employees. How how are you letting them work into that? Well, the the yearling thing makes it pretty easy because that's something that it's <clears throat> pretty cut and dried when they're arriving and when they're leaving. Sure. So I give them. So I pay commodity wages. Tech, hmm. You can ask your accountant about that. I'm, I'm not okay. a tax advisor, so, <laughs> yeah, sure. but, uh, so, so I pay, in, I try to pay in commodity wages when I can. And so I kind of sure. give them an advance. So basically I'm paying them for, um, August and I'll say August and September. I'm paying them right now by buying, uh, you know, like a two and a half percent stake in sure. every stocker that we're laying in right now. They're responsible for the monthly bills that come with it, but, once we get into August and September, when we're starting to sell those stockers, that's you know th- at least at times their um, their wages with you know when I I don't take their wages now. Basically, I'm financing their cattle. I guess is another way to, to put it. Um, and uh, at least we start with that, and uh, they just know that whatever however many cattle we're buying now, that's coming out of their wages in the fall. But they're getting paid for the you know they'll get the gain on the cattle or the loss, I guess, depending on whichever way it goes. So. Sure. Huh. No, that's, that's really neat and, and unique. I've not heard that, but I like that way of, you know, engaging them in the business in a way that, well, I guess I was just having this conversation with a neighbor here not too long ago is that, you know, he's saying how hard it is to find good help and good employees, you know, to work underneath you and stuff. And that we were talking about a local business that, sold a big portion of the business to a non-family member, even though they have young family members and stuff, but like that, they saw that this person had the potential to really be a big part of this business. And if they wanted to keep them long-term, they would need to give them a stake, give them some ownership, give them investment into this so that they, you know, they have more than just their hours and labor you know, into it. So I think that's an mm-hmm. important part. It seems like of building a, I mean, kind of talking about a sustainable business that can pass on you know through generations is you know getting investment in in the next generation that that's really neat yeah well and i think in agriculture we're we think about that you know passing on to the next generation and we our automatic or thought on that is my flesh and blood and as much as i would love to have our kids you know be involved when they are old enough and i mean involved like coming back as making this a career if they don't want to do that but i got somebody that's been here for 10 years and still doesn't have an ownership stake and i'm passing all of this on all the equity on to somebody that's maybe their age or younger mm-hmm. that's not even living here and now that person is has say in what we're doing how long is that guy gonna want to stick around here as a hired hand i mean 
I, I want to, yeah, of course I want to leave things to my kids uh, yeah. and make sure that they have what they need to live a, a, a good life and all that. But the people that are here putting in the, the blood, sweat and tears, um, they deserve to have more than just a paycheck in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I like that. I, I wish more folks had that mindset. I know my dad has always told me that if I didn't want to come back to the place here that, uh, that don't expect any of it, he's going to find somebody else who, you know, values the way he manages this land and values the land more than myself or my siblings, and he's going to help them get into it. And I think, you know, I, I'd like to think that, you know, hopefully I'll have kids that want to come back as well. But if, if not, I'd like to do the same thing. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it seems more and more rare, you know, as, you know, people see the value of these assets that, you know, we're fortunate to have received a lot, you know, not even necessarily a lot of us uh, due to our own business decisions, but just past generations working their butts off to build this, that now we've got this big dollar sign and it's easy to just want to sell it off. But that's, a, you know, it's unfortunate that that's the popular mindset, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. So you kind of brought up like the success thing and you talked about economic success, but I'm curious if you had to define like, what does it mean to be successful in your, I guess you can say your life and your business? I mean, is there a definition that you're working towards to that you would consider success? Well, I guess to not have regrets. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like that's, that's not the right, not, not the right way to go about it, or to say it probably. But hmm. I mean, I, I do feel extremely blessed to be in the position that I am and have the opportunities that I've had, have the family that I've got, even be in this location. I mean, I've thought about what if we were ranching, you know, 200 miles east or 200 miles west. And while we could do it, there's so many things about this location geographically that I really, really appreciate. So so knowing that none of those things are anything that I did, but Mm -hmm. I feel like that was the Lord's plan to have me in this place at this time with these resources. Um, I want to please him with the way that I manage them. I want him to look with favor, <laughs> I guess, or yeah. be pleased with how I've taken care of what he's created and, and the resources he's given me. And that doesn't just end with the business or the, or the land. It's also my family and relationships that I've got, you know, with friends and, and whatnot. So it's, I guess that holistic mindset of, you know, land, people and and uh, resources like i want to manage all those well and be able to just be a, a faithful servant with those things and i think that's going to show up in the health of all of those areas you know mm-hmm. if i have good relationships with my family with with people in the community is my land um, improving or getting worse is, are my animals healthy you know mm-hmm. those things help me to know i guess which direction any of those areas are going and, and there's been times where one of those is suffering and i got to change course and work on that area again but uh that's kind of a maybe not a very specific um no it, answer I, for I, you a bit well i don't think success is specific i mean there's so many aspects of life to say it's one thing mm-hmm. it's you know one million dollars by age 45 you know whatever it is that's not you know that's not success i guess and maybe it is for somebody but you know um I was just having a conversation with somebody yesterday on kind of this topic and, uh, you know, I wanted to talk more about conservation and stuff, but I think we talked a little bit about it in some parts and how the sheep and the rotational grazing and stuff, but I, we're on this topic of kind of the social aspect of this. I want to kind of carry on it. And I'm curious how you've engaged your family in the ranch and if at all, and how you, I don't know, are 
have you found that you've been able to instill a love and value of land and management in your family and also respect this, you know, work-life balance and, and things? I mean, do you have any tips that you've learned in your, in what is it, 16 years? I think it's in 2006 <laughs> since you got back. You, you've, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, what do you, what do you think? Well, I, c- I could probably give you some examples of work-life balance that, that you should not follow <laughs> at times. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that's, that's the hard part. I think when you're, you're, when you're doing something that you really love, and you know, as you say, you never work a day in your life if you do what you love and all that. Well, not everybody else might view it that way, <laughs> you know, especially your spouse. If, if you can't, if you love it so much that there's no thought of doing anything outside of the business, that's not a good situation. And, and there's been times where that's been, I've, I've fallen into that where like, I don't, I mean, I could read about cattle and grazing and whatever, like this stuff, I could just immerse myself in that all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I will be okay with that, but you know, that's not all there is to life. And it's important to have some interests and some connection to something outside of, you know, just your day-to-day work as, as awesome as it is, it, it shouldn't be the end of who you are as a person. And I think that's probably what, you know, there's been some more awareness of like mental health and agriculture probably in the last few years. And maybe the reason that that's an, an issue is because we've just tied our identity to our work so closely. I don't know. I mean, that there's people smarter than I that probably have mm-hmm. some good commentary on that sort of thing. But, you know, my wife didn't grow up uh, in agriculture. She grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis. So this is all new to her. And so, so I've had to, to learn things that I just kind of took for granted. This is how everybody operates. This is how a ranch family should be or whatever. I, I've, I've had to kind of think, okay, well, hang on a second. That's not how she grew up. And I need to take that into account here. Mm-hmm. And um, so to love her well, I, I need to have that space to get away from it a little bit. And and she helps out. I mean, she's involved um, in, in different capacities. But yeah, like I said, I just uh, she's been a good reality check for me to you know, hey, we don't have to talk about the cows at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, like we don't have to. We can talk about something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no, that's um, that's really, I would say, insightful. I mean, yeah, the if you do what you love, you never work in a day in your life and stuff. Yeah. But so if you spend all your time doing what you love, I mean, part of marriage and a relationship is sacrificing some of what you maybe want for the other person and, and they want to spend time with you too. So it's maybe not, it's, it can be selfish in a way to spend your entire life focused on what you love, even though you do and stuff. So no, that, that's yeah. a, yeah, that's a really, yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I mean, if, if that's what you and your spouse love to do together, I mean, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. that's a bad thing at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in our case, that's not, that's not like my, my wife's passion is not going out and building fence. And that's mm-hmm. fine. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. she might come with me to go build a fence sometimes because she loves me, but not because she loves fence. So we have to go do other things together. And, and that's important. As far as the kids, I'm, we're still figuring that out because they're, they're still young and what are they able to do that's safe? And so that's actually something I have to remind myself constantly is, is this something I'm setting up that I can bring my kids with me mm-hmm. and take the extra half an hour that it's going to take because they're not as fast or, or whatever, or is this just about efficiency? I just got to get it done. No, they can't come today because I'm too busy. You know, that, that, that's a constant battle when I've spent so many, so much time trying to make it so that I can do it by myself. That's, that's a tough one too. 
uh, lots, lots to consider. It's, it's interesting. Just it's, it's such a unique business that we have the ability to do with family that so many people, business employees, you know, whatever it is, don't have that opportunity, but it obviously then brings some challenge too, because it's a business that can be over, overtake a whole life. And so, you know, yes, you can do it with family, but you need to make sure, like you said, that it doesn't become the identity of yourself and your family, maybe too, um, that you, you find that balance. So yeah, when you figure it out, let me know. I, uh, we're still working on it ourselves too. But, uh, um, well, and I think it does come back to like one thing I, I want to be a good steward, but not mm-hmm. having to this, if it's not perfect, that's okay. You know, if, if this fence isn't perfect, that's okay. Especially if I'm, it's not perfect because I'm, making sure I'm a good dad or a good husband, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just that constant drive to get better in the business sometimes comes at a cost of doing, mm-hmm. you know, getting in in time to take my daughter to basketball practice or something, you know, that, mm-hmm. so not having to get everything right in the business is probably for me, that's one step that I have to take more frequently. Yeah. Well, so. Good point. Not to change topic too much, but going forward, is there a, you know, what do you see as the future of your, your ranch? And, you know, are there changes that you see making that you're looking at doing that, you know, from a business side, from a family and lifestyle side? And, um, you know, I, I think ownership of some sheep is probably in our future, even with high, the high prices, I guess, that are being experienced now. I think the economics are probably still pretty lucrative, I guess, even if I, if I consider whether I should own more cows or own sheep, I probably should be owning more sheep. So mm-hmm. that's probably something we're going to look into more in more in depth in the, the next couple of years as I continue to get a little better understanding of just the whole sector, I guess. I don't know. I, I honestly, this is probably the first time in a while that I felt like we're, f- we could do this for a while and not have to change too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. One thing I, every year I kind of evaluate whether what we should do on our genetic side, our cow herd is, is Angus based, but it's, we're trying to get them pretty well adapted to our environment and our management mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But we've been using a terminal cross on half to two thirds of the herd. So we've been using uh, Wagyu or Akaushi wools mm-hmm. to create a real high marbling product that apparently is in pretty good demand right now. Cause mm-hmm. I actually have people calling me wanting to buy calves rather than me hoping that somebody wants to bid on them. So, so that's kind yeah. of a fun situation to be in, but I'm not, I'm not always sure if that, like, and the nice thing about that being a terminal cross, we don't keep any females and I can switch gears next year if I want to. So mm-hmm. I'm always trying to think about what, is there something else we should be looking at? And depending on how, you know, maybe what some of these in- cattle inventory numbers look like, maybe we should be going back to, a maternal cross again and being willing to sell some bread cows or, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I always debate that every year. And of course that's a yeah. long-term decision. You, you make it and it takes four years until it all works its way out. But yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so. I like on the cow thing that, rem- I mean, I remember in the, the episode you did on the work, the roots and ruminants podcast, you talked about like, who knows where the future of the industry of cattle will be. Will it be more of a grass-based genetic type? And by having a maternal herd that fits this low input model, you have flexibility that you can breed terminal cross to, if the market continues to go down this, you know, more growthy, you know, carcass traits model, or you have the cow to breed for the other program if the market shifts. 
Yeah. And that's what's been really neat. I think as I've kind of, and running these, these Angus cattle as yearlings has shown me that just because they have, you know, quote unquote, you know, poor EPDs by industry standards, they still like, they actually still make pretty decent feeder cattle that somebody wants. You just got to manage them a little differently. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I really do. I, I am, I am pleased with where we're at on our, like our cow type, I guess. Uh, yeah. or I should say I'm pleased with the direction, you know, that, that we've gone. Uh, Cause I do really feel like we've got flexibility um, to mm-hmm. go different, different ways with the offspring. But yeah, I mean, as far as the future of the industry, I, feel fairly strongly that we will need to be able to to sell our value as managers of grazing lands more than we have in the past. In the, in the past, we we just sold cattle. And more and more, I think society is going to value what we bring to the table in terms of environmental or uh, um, ecosystem services and environmental benefits and you know wildlife habitat, clean air, clean water, those kind of things. I don't think society's concern for those areas or those issues is going to go away. And um, I think we need to be thinking how we're positioning ourselves as managers to be able to prove our worth to the consumer beyond just, hey, there's a good taste in steak, but mm-hmm. we're bringing more than just a food product. So, yeah, yeah, no, we are. And, and I, uh, would love to go down that conversation trail, but we don't probably have that much time. And uh, and you, you did have a good conversation on that other podcast. So folks should listen to that one too, if they want to hear that, because it, it, it's a good point. And I like that you're, you're, you're thinking ahead. You know, I, Gabe Brown talks about, I think, a 200-year plan or a 400-year plan or something like that. I mean, on his ranch that they've developed and, you know, I, you don't maybe need to plan that specifically that far out and stuff, but just thinking about what is the future, what are the trends, where are you going? I, I love that as being one of the biggest advantages of being a grazing-based business is adaptability. You're not tied into infrastructure of, you know, a massive dairy facility that may be, you know, obsolete in a given amount of time or something like that, that you have the options to shift. And if crops no longer make sense, you can put your cropland into pasture and you can change the type of cow or you can switch to sheep or goats. I mean, there's so much diversity and or in uh, adaptability and flexibility just in a grazing based enterprise that leaves up, uh, you know, it, it just builds in some kind of natural resiliency to future market shifts or something. So I like that. Yeah. I, I've heard, and, um, other people probably have heard this quote too, but Jeff Bezos was asked, or he says, he says, I, I get asked a lot about what's going to happen in the next 10 years, you know, kind of like what's the future going to bring. And he says basically that when he built Amazon, it wasn't trying to guess what the future was going to be, like what's going to change, but rather what's going to be the same. People are going to want cheap stuff delivered to their house and, you know, conveniently. So that's what he built his business model around. And, and that's, that's kind of his his way of thinking, and I I think there's a lot of merit to that in how we look at egg in general. But what are the things that are going to be here in ten years, or what are the things that are stable over time? The value of grazing animals on native rangeland. I don't think that's like native rangeland is not going to change in ten years to where it doesn't suddenly need something grazing it anymore. Like that to properly manage it, that has to be there people aren't going to stop caring about where their food comes from. I don't think they're not going to stop caring about how we treat our animals. Like some of those kind of things aren't going away. And so when I'm thinking about what, you know, what should we be doing differently? I think that's a good place to start 
is uh, what are these things that are not going to change and how do we make sure that we're addressing those areas? That's, yeah, that's an interesting thought. I would not heard him say that or thought of that, but is there anything that I haven't asked you about that, that you think is worth mentioning before we start to wrap up? Um, I guess nothing specific comes to mind. I have to, <laughs> I think we, we hit on a lot of stuff there. Right? Good. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I I agree. I, I think that was great. I really appreciate all you shared. I, I got a couple questions for you before we wrap up then. And, and the first one is like, what's one or two resources that you would recommend? Is there like books, conferences, you know, conventions, different things that if you were, if someone was asking you, where do I go to learn this stuff? I mean, you know, what, what where would you direct them? Well, there's, I mean, I, I would, I can make a really long list of resources <laughs> that <laughs> I've learned from. So it's, it's hard to narrow it down. Um, I guess I should say the herd quitter podcast is a really great place yes, to start. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, but uh, podcasts in general, I think that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that those have really come along in the last few, excuse me, the last few years. So I think mm-hmm. that is a really good place to, to get started. Um, but I mean, there's tons of YouTube videos. Um, I guess, I, you'd mentioned the ranching for profit school earlier. I think that's a excellent resource. Um, it's a great place to kind of get your mind in the right, mm-hmm. get your mindset right to be able mm-hmm. to accept some new ideas in a lot of ways and gives you the tools to evaluate decisions and that sort of thing. So, and mm-hmm. from that, you're going to develop a network of people that think the same way, have the same language as you. And so I, I, I would definitely recommend that. I, I guess I, I like to follow some people on Twitter that have, you know, new ideas and different ways of thinking about things. Anybody in particular? Let's see. I, well, I'm going to miss somebody if I, yeah, no, too big a list, I guess, but um, no, just go down the regenerative egg rabbit hole and you'll find enough crazy ideas that uh, some apply to you, some don't, but it, and there's, it seems like there's different communities. I think on TikTok, there's a different group of people that are talking about the same stuff that I don't know, you know, so mm-hmm. whichever platform you're on, I'm sure that there's a group there somewhere, Facebook groups and that sort of thing too. But I was going to say uh, one podcast that I have enjoyed and I don't listen to every episode, but um, it's called the knowledge project with Shane Parrish. And uh, there's been some really interesting episodes on there about just how to think about things, how to make decisions and learn from people that are, have already been where you're at. I feel like being able to weigh a new idea or even weigh an idea, uh, something you're already doing objectively and decide, should I continue to do this or should I change to this other thing? And um, understanding how to take risks and make decisions. I think that's a really necessary skill in, in anything, right? Agriculture, life in general, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's been an interesting pocket. Like I said, I don't listen to all of them, but there's there's been some pretty thought-provoking interviews he's done. Um, Huh, I've not heard that one, and I listen to a lot, so I've already subscribed to that here on my phone while you're mentioning it. Okay, stuff, so yeah, appreciate no, that. So my favorite episode, probably my my favorite ep- episode, podcast episode ever, was the one he did with Annie Duke. I don't even know what the date was. You'll have to scroll back like 50 episodes to find it. But okay, th- that one that one I would recommend because that that's a lot about making decisions and well, when you don't have yeah. co- the complete information. So yeah. No, I will. I will. Um, the last question I had for you is, is how can people reach out to you? How can people learn more about what you're doing um, if if they if they want to? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter 
at Rock Hills Ranch. We've got a website, rockhillsranch.com, but I'm not real great at updating that. But if you want to at least see what it looks like <laughs> where I'm at, you can see some pictures. Perfect. Um, and then I guess uh, my email address is on the website, or you can message me sure. through Twitter. That's fine too. So Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Luke. Really appreciated this. This was a great conversation and I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you gave a little time to talk today. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me and uh, hope there's something useful in all that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.